This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and today we're talking about nuclear weapons and their possible use. 75 years ago today, on August 6th, the United States destroyed the Japanese city of Hiroshima by dropping the first nuclear bomb used in combat. Just a few days later, the U.S. destroyed the city of Nagasaki. Together, an estimated 130,000 to 225,000 people were killed, most of whom were civilians. And to this day, it's the only time nuclear weapons have been used in armed conflict. This somber anniversary invites reflections on the state of nuclear weapons in our world today and the likelihood of their use. Topics that seem to have faded from public consciousness and discussion in recent years. Yet the weapons continue to exist, and in large numbers. And there are reasons for concern. The arms control regimes that have regulated these weapons are being cast aside. Nuclear modernization programs are underway in Russia, the United States, and China. Resuming nuclear testing is being discussed. Major power rivalry is increasing. And new technologies are upending the logics that we relied on to deter the use of these weapons. So what does this all add up to? Where are we headed and what can be done? To explore these issues, I'm joined by Elizabeth Sherwood Randall, who has held many government positions, including Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy. And currently, she is a distinguished professor at the Nunn School of International Affairs at Georgia Tech and a senior fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. She's also the author of a recent article in Foreign Affairs titled The Age of Strategic Instability, How Novel Technologies Disrupt the Nuclear Balance. Welcome to Deep Dish, Liz. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here with you today. Also joining us for this conversation is Scott Sagan, who is a professor of political science at Stanford University, where he is also a senior fellow at their Center for International Security and Cooperation. Scott is the co-author of a recent article in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists titled, Why the Atomic Bombing of Hiroshima Would Be Illegal Today. Welcome to Deep Dish, Scott. Well, it's a pleasure to join you and Liz on this very somber day. So I want to focus most of our conversation, as I indicated in the setup, on the current situations that we face today. But I want to start off just by setting a couple of pieces in place. And, and one of those is historical. And Scott, I'd like to start with you and ask if you could briefly just share with us the thinking in the U.S. about the one time nuclear weapons were used in conflict. Why did the U.S. make the decision to use the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Well, the United States had already crossed the ethical Rubicon earlier in the war when we began firebombing cities in Germany and in um, Japan in earlier in 1945. And so it was not a, a real um, surprise that once we developed the nuclear capability that we decided that we were going to try to uh, shock Japan into surrendering. Uh, when Henry Stimson told Harry Truman, the new president, that we had successfully tested a nuclear weapon, he had two requests of the president. Uh, first, he said, I want you to take Kyoto off of the target list. It was the number one target for the U.S. nuclear bombing, and Stimson thought that this would be wrong. He had been to Kyoto, he thought the ancient capital was beautiful, and he thought that would anger the Japanese forever if we had destroyed their ancient capital. Um, second, he asked the, that Truman um, take 
the unconditional surrender request, the demand that we were uh, had made, he said that you, we should alter it, we should soften it, so that the emperor could stay in a position of symbolic importance, because he thought maybe we could get Japan to surrender without having to drop the bomb. Truman agreed with the first and took Kyoto off the target list. He disagreed with the second request. And to me, the great tragedy of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is that had we made a deal with the emperor, it is a distinct possibility that Japan could have surrendered earlier. We don't know that for sure. In the end, Truman made that deal only after Nagasaki and Hiroshima had been destroyed, but it is a possibility. And the tragedy is we didn't try to make that diplomatic deal earlier. So the other piece that I want to get out on the table is the ideas that have provided the stability that we've had in the nuclear age. And, and one of the things that clearly happened in Nagasaki and Hiroshima was the demonstration of the huge, horrific destruction that these weapons are capable of. And those are relatively small by today's standards. Liz, could you share with us the central concept and, you know, often captured in the phrase of, of strategic stability that has held us in a situation where the weapons haven't been used again? Kind of what's the logic that has guided our, our situation since the day of the first use of these weapons? The most important concept that has guided us, and this has existed principally in a time in which there were only two major nuclear powers during the Cold War, was the logic, uh, which sounds insane, but it was the logic of what is known as mutual assured destruction. That is that uh, the two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, held each other at such risk they could each destroy the other with their massive nuclear arsenals. And so what evolved over time between the two countries uh, was uh, the reality that because of those large arsenals, we did not go to war with one another. Uh, we fought proxy wars in other places. Um, it's not as if the world did not have conflict, but the United States and the Soviet Union did not uh, end up in an all-out war with each other. Now, what transpired was the development of the following concept, and this is what uh, strategic stability is based upon. That is that each superpower knew that its adversary could massively retaliate against a first strike by the other. So that means I knew if I were thinking about striking Moscow, if I were a U.S. planner, I would know that Moscow could strike back at me substantially, significantly, potentially existentially, and that therefore that created a disincentive to resorting to nuclear first use. Uh, and that notion of a second strike capability, which is in the lexicon of those who work on these very arcane things, <laughs> uh, was essential. So you had to ensure that both sides had that confidence that the other uh, would retain sufficient capabilities to retaliate massively in order to preserve the balance of terror. This has many risks associated with it, and we are extraordinarily fortunate uh, that this did not end in global catastrophe. But thus far, since that the somber time that we have been discussing, when Japan uh, was uh, bombed by the United States to bring about an end to the Second World War, 
uh, there has never been another use of a nuclear weapon. So wonderful. Thank you both for those pieces. And I want to take that as our basis for jumping into where we are today. And, and Scott, you've just written this piece in which you argue that today, Hiroshima would be illegal under today's international laws. Can you share with us, why did you write the piece and how did you come to that conclusion? I wrote this article, Why the Atomic Bombing of Hiroshima Would Be Illegal Today, because I'm deeply worried. Um, Not only am I worried about some of the technical and political issues that Liz Sherwood-Randall raises about strategic stability between two nuclear states, I'm also worried that the American public has lost some of its sense of horror about nuclear weapons and that in realistic conditions in the future, uh, we might contemplate using nuclear weapons against a non-nuclear weapons state. In 2017, Ben Valentino at Dartmouth and I published an article called Revisiting Hiroshima in Iran that showed that if we entered a war with Iran today, 60% of the public in the United States would support using a nuclear weapon as we did against Japan, to try to shock Iran into a surrender. We, in a survey experiment, had one Hiroshima-like scenario, killing 100,000 people to permit the United States not to have an invasion, which would kill 20,000 Americans, we estimated. We had a different representative sample of the American public be given a scenario in which 2 million Iranians were expected to be killed in a nuclear attack. And 60% of the public also supported that. To me, this suggests that the um, principle of non-combatant immunity or the so-called nuclear taboo does not resonate very strongly with the American public. We need, therefore, to have the military take the lead in ensuring that we always follow the laws of armed conflict and don't engage in an attack like that I must say it would also be helpful if we had a president of the United States who also cared about the laws of armed conflict because the current holder of that office uh, does not seem to care very much about the laws of armed conflict because he's repeatedly argued that we should violate them. Um, And that's why I'm worried and that's why I wanted to publish this article. So let me follow up on that a little bit. You know, some people say, my good friend John Mearsheimer down at the University of Chicago around the corner from here, that you know, international law doesn't matter at all if we're in a situation of conflict. Um, states are going to do what states are going to do. What do you think this adds, and how does it create some sort of constraint or some sort of break on the potential use of weapons? Ever since the My Lai massacre uh, during the Vietnam War, the U.S. military has been trained um, and is asked to train on this every year. Um, on the idea that if you are issued a, an illegal order, that you are obligated to disobey it. And that's true if you're an um, infantry foot soldier or if you're the commander of the U.S. Strategic Command. And General John Hyten, the commander uh, until recently of the Strategic Command, has said that he understands that that if the president said, I wanted you to do something that was illegal, that he is obligated and must, therefore, say, sir, that's illegal. 
tell me what it is that you want. What's your, what's your objective? What are you trying to achieve? And let me see if I can come up with a legal way of doing that. To my mind, for example, um, because we have agreed that the additional protocol of the Geneva Conventions is customary international law, and we have said that we will follow it, if the president said, I want to use a nuclear weapon on that target, but it wasn't necessary that we could use a conventional weapon, which would cause less collateral damage, the military is obligated to say, sir, we can't do that. We would uh, take this out this target with conventional weapons, but we will not use a nuclear weapon for that. And the president would then therefore be forced either to agree with the military to follow that constraint, or he'd have to fire a military officer in a moment of crisis, which is possible. That's why you should be worried, but it also is a constraint on a president. I think he's absolutely right in that we have lived now for three and a half years in an environment in which the norms that have been established have been profoundly shaken in this domain. And so we do have a president who has threatened nuclear use in ways that are, are deeply irresponsible. And for those of us who've exercised for nuclear command and control, very disturbing. And while uh, it is important that the senior military leadership be as wise and steady as uh, uh, Professor Sagan has described them uh, being, that is, they are trained properly, they're rigorous and, and uh, would, would push back. We also know that under extreme circumstances, things can happen that escalate out of control. And we have not had a culture in the last few years coming from the White House, which emphasizes the imperative of reducing uh, instability and preventing unnecessary escalation. In fact, we've had the opposite. We've had leadership that has abandoned the agreements and broken the regimes, as you noted in your introduction, Brian, broken the regimes that have provided some guardrails and assisted us in managing the potential risks, both with nuclear powers and non-nuclear powers, as, as uh, Professor Sagan has observed. So I'd add now, because we're at this moment of thinking about what happened 75 years ago, we can also think about some of the uh, experiences that our country has had, uh, whether you watch a movie like 1917, or you read and learn about what happened during the Second World War, it's very important to appreciate that wars don't go as you initially planned. They tend to have many dimensions that, that are very different from what, what you originally think may happen, and that the costs and consequences could be far beyond our wildest dreams. And therefore, we need to do everything we can to strengthen the legal norms that Professor Sagan is advocating we respect, and also other elements of the equation that will reduce the possibility that we end up escalating into a war that will be catastrophic for the planet. So I want to engage exactly there and ask for each of you to comment on a development in the modernization program, you know, particularly in the United States. And it has been, you know, something that has been discussed at times before, 
but it is developing lower yield nuclear weapons that are essentially just less destructive nuclear weapons. Sometimes they call them tactical nuclear weapons. And the argument is made in an attempt to address both of the concerns that you raise, right? On the legal front, people say these weapons are yields and can be delivered with a precision that minimizes civilian targets. So we're not talking about that mutually assured destruction world. We're not talking about massive loss of civilian life. We can target them in, at military targets. And also, some have said this is a way to avoid the escalation of a conflict. You know, Russians have gone so far as uh, escalate to de escalate doctrine where you can demonstrate that you're willing to use nuclear weapons with a low yield weapon. And that will actually shut down the conflict. So how do you view this, you know, active current debate, which is shaping decisions about the U.S. nuclear arsenal right now? Scott, do you want to go first? Absolutely. Um, so I favor the development of lower yield nuclear weapons, but I want to caution um, you, Brian, um, against using the term tactical nuclear weapons. Any use of a nuclear weapon is a strategic decision, and it would have the utmost importance. And when we talk about it as a tactic uh, or as a tactical weapon, um, I, I think it... it um, distracts from that very important um, principle. That said, um, a lower yield weapon does both increase the credibility of deterrence because it makes it more likely that the United States would respond in a limited um, manner to any Russian use of a nuclear weapon. But it also creates the temptation, which is why some people are opposed to it, that we might use nuclear weapons when we might otherwise not want to. So I would couple any development of lower yield nuclear weapons with a doctrinal change saying that we will never use nuclear weapons first, that we will have a no first use doctrine, and that we would follow what Jeffrey Lewis and I have called the nuclear necessity principle. We should never use a nuclear weapon when a conventional weapon would do the job. So if you couple both of those together, I think the development of lower yield weapons uh, is a stabilizing rather than destabilizing development. Liz? So in my thinking, there are two ways of understanding the development of low yield weapons. And Professor Sagan has already alluded to both. And that is uh, they could increase the likelihood of use of nuclear weapons that is, if you lower the threshold because you think less damage will be done, you may believe that you can use a nuclear weapon and not uh, invoke an all-out nuclear war. But they could also enhance deterrence. That is, you could increase strategic stability because there could be the perception by an adversary that you're more likely to use a nuclear weapon in response to something they may do and therefore they won't provoke you. And so that could reduce the likelihood of escalation. Uh, we don't know what the outcome will be. It depends very much on the context in which the nuclear weapons uh, would be uh, considered for use. And right now, unfortunately, we have a situation in which there's a great deal of concern about the possible irresponsible use of nuclear weapons by the United States. That's, that is quite novel. And so we have to think about whether in this context, uh, moving in this direction is stabilizing or destabilizing. 
Deep Dish listeners, I want to take a quick break from today's episode to remind you that the Chicago Council on Global Affairs relies on contributions and donations from listeners like you in order to produce Deep Dish and help people understand the most important issues facing our world. If you're enjoying Deep Dish, I'd ask you to consider supporting our podcast by going to our website, thechicagocouncil.org slash support deep dish. That's thechicagocouncil.org slash support deep dish. Thank you for your support. So Liz, I want to pick up on this technology point and the development of new technologies, looking beyond nuclear weapons and really draw on your recent foreign affairs piece, where you call out new technologies in domains such as cyber and space and others as potentially destabilizing the essential logic that you laid out earlier around which we built strategic stability, at least with other nuclear powers. What are your concerns in that regard? Well, I'm going to quote from President Obama's visit to Hiroshima in the spring of 2016, the last year of his presidency, when he said, technological progress without an equivalent progress in human institutions can doom us. I think what we're seeing is the evolution of technologies, new technologies with military applications, uh, space, cyber, biotechnologies that have the potential of achieving effects militarily that once would have been considered in the nuclear domain strategic, meaning that they have the consequence of potentially impairing or disabling the adversary's ability to respond effectively. And that means that you could have a situation in which you are experiencing an attack by an adversary that may not be uh, of the kind we have prepared for in the nuclear domain, but we could have similar consequences to uh, a nuclear attack. And that could then create a spiral of escalation that has not been anticipated in doctrine. Don't really know how to consider whether such an attack is worthy of a counterattack with nuclear weapons based on the logic I described earlier. So let me give you an example, because we are living with this today, uh, albeit without it being deliberate. If we were to experience a massive biological attack from an adversary that created widespread illness, so such as a pandemic, but because of the use of a bioweapon, would that be an attack that therefore would warrant a nuclear response? And is there a way in which stating that could deter such an attack? Or if you stated that you would use nuclear weapons in the face of such an attack, and then you did not because of the potential downsides of doing so, would you diminish the deterrent effect of your arsenal and subject yourself to further attack? There's a whole logic that has to now be developed around the emergence of new capabilities with strategic effects that we have not yet developed. And that's work that needs to be done both by strategists and military planners, needs to be thought through by policymakers, and importantly, it needs to be worked on in academic institutions where scholars like Professor Sagan have the opportunity to consider in depth uh, the the logic that that needs to develop to diminish the likelihood of 
chaotic escalation to catastrophe. So Scott, you've been named specifically as responsible for helping us think this through. What are your concerns in this area? And to what extent do you see efforts to address some of these issues, both in terms of of within the United States, but also with other nuclear powers? Well, I'd say the the logic of nuclear weapons for some people creates a simple uh, but rather gruesome form of deterrence. That is, um, any large-scale use of nuclear weapons would be so catastrophic that any statesman from any kind of state, regardless of whether it's a democracy or non-democracy, would be deterred from initiating those initial uses. But those of us who study history and um, understand the many close calls that occurred during the Cold War understand that nuclear weapons are not really controlled by states or statesmen. They're controlled by normal human beings who are often fragile and make bad decisions. And they're controlled by military organizations who follow standard operating procedures, who sometimes make mistakes and sometimes respond to false warnings. So however we deal with the complications of deterrence in this modern world, We have to do it with, I think, a a, a much stronger sense of the risks involved, um, that things can go wrong, and that we have to be really cautious when we come to making nuclear threats. I don't believe, for example, that um, our threats to North Korea uh, in uh, the last few years have been helpful. Uh, We had that incident um, in January 2018 where a um, warning operator in Hawaii issued a warning that a missile was incoming and announced this is not a test. And people in Hawaii panicked. Now, in Washington, D.C., or in Omaha, where the strategic command is, no one panicked because we had overhead reconnaissance. We had multiple forms of warning that said, um, you know, there's no missile coming. We had responsible officers who immediately said, oh, we made a mistake and we screwed up and we're sorry and issued a a contrary warning. And we really didn't think that North Korea was about to attack Hawaii. Now, imagine for one second that that incident occurred in North Korea instead. All three of the conditions that mitigated the danger for us wouldn't exist there. A, they don't have redundant sensors that would tell them that this was a false warning. B, you don't, if you make a mistake in North Korea, admit it, because you can get killed, not just fired for making a mistake. And third, they do believe we might attack them because President Trump kept telling them that we might attack them. So I think we're in a very dangerous space, and Liz Sherwood Randall's absolutely right to be highlighting some of the new complications that are over the horizon on questions about technology and strategic stability. But we're going to have to approach this with really careful kid gloves and not make the kinds of threats that unfortunately uh, we have been making over the last few years. 
So I want to layer one piece on top of this, and this was the recent social media incident where famous peoples, including Joe Biden's account, was taken over by what turned out to be a 17-year-old kid for a play-together Bitcoin finance. But in the scenario you just laid out, Scott, one could imagine a much more dangerous situation where, you know, there's a report of a nuclear attack coming, where big accounts of credible people are taken over. And as you both noted, the decision-making time is really short in a situation like that of whether or not you're going to decide to retaliate. How big a threat is this in today's world, do you think? Well, as the mother of two boys who have both played Minecraft in their youth, I was particularly (laughs) horrified by the news that This was a young man who had been quite good at Minecraft and then had put his mind to much more pernicious uh, activities. And there's no question that this raises great concern about whether you could have a malicious uh, takeover of a Twitter account, which could, for example, announce the launching of a war and and create huge potential risk uh, for a situation that could spiral out of control based on misinformation, or disinformation, or both. And so the social media world that we live in with a president who tweets frequently, I think is a much riskier one than has existed during the period that Professor Sagan described when there were plenty of close calls without uh, the kind of instant transmission of information that now can go viral and, and reach multiple millions of people instantaneously. Yeah, we've actually had one incident like that uh, in recent years. In uh, 2018, um, the U.S. military personnel in South Korea received a message over their social media and text message accounts um, that not all non-essential personnel uh, were ordered to evacuate from South Korea. Uh, the U.S. military did not send out that message. Somebody had hacked the system and had sent it out um, uh, as a false warning. And we don't know, at least publicly today, whether that was the North Koreans playing games, whether that was some private individual doing it. Um, but you can imagine if there was, if that occurred in a real crisis, that could be really, really dangerous. So one of the reasons for this conversation today is that it is the anniversary of the use of nuclear weapons in combat. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, this isn't something that's talked about. And and we've gone through a number of factors by which these issues are particularly dangerous and becoming increasingly dangerous. The, the possibility of use not on black and white film, but use in the world today. So I'd like to ask each of you, what do you think are the most important priorities for addressing these issues and lowering the risk that the weapons would be used? Well, maybe I can start by quoting... Um the late uh, General John Charlie Koshvili, whom uh, Liz worked very closely with when he was uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs and she worked in the Pentagon. Uh, General Charlie uh, used to say that he would um, talk to his uh, soldiers before going into combat and would say, uh, are you scared? And they would say, oh, no, sir, we're not scared. And he said, you know, you should be scared. Because what you're doing is exceedingly dangerous. And you should be scared enough to be smart in what you do. Don't 
exhibit bravado, but turn your fear into um, action. And I think the American public needs that message. We should be scared about these things. And to the degree that you can turn your fear uh, into action, that is, I'm going to vote for people who have the right views about this. I'm going to um, ask my Congress uh, persons and senators uh, to vote for moderation in these areas. And I'm going to vote for leaders who make non-rash, smart, cautious decisions. That's really the most important thing the American public can do right now. I will echo what Professor Sagan has said. It's If you've listened to this whole podcast, you've heard a lot of stuff that is both frightening and also confusing. And many people tune out a discussion about nuclear strategy or nuclear war or other kinds of conflict that could have similar effects. It's just too hard to listen to, and especially in these times, which are, which are very difficult for many people. But it's actually a citizen's responsibility to learn enough to use their voice and to use their vote to guide our country to resume its leadership position as a nation that advances the cause of proliferation prevention, of strategic stability in a new and far more dynamic era, and of cooperation with countries, including those who are our rivals and adversaries. We must work together. As we have seen through this pandemic, there are no borders for many risks that we face on the planet today. This is true of nuclear weapons. It's true of climate change. It's true of pandemics. And so it's imperative that our approach be one in which we have the humility to understand that we have to sit down and talk to those who are our adversaries, just as we need to rebuild our relationships with our allies, because we are stronger when we stand together with them. So I think there's much that citizens can do if they take responsibility and use their minds and their voices and their votes uh, in the coming year. Elizabeth Sherwood Randall of Harvard's Belfer Center and Scott Sagan of Stanford, I want to thank you both for coming on Deep Dish on this anniversary to reflect on the history, what we've learned, and how it's relevant for choices we're making today. Thanks for being on Deep Dish. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And thank you for tuning into this episode. Looking for more Deep Dish in your week? Please tap the subscribe button in your podcast app so you can get each and every new episode as it's released. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please tap share and send it to them as well. As a reminder, the opinions you heard belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. This episode is produced by Molly Meyer, edited by Andy Zarnecki, and coordinated by Kira Daring. I'm your host, Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish. Deep Dish.